Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I know we have a crew up at Mizpah for our youth ski retreat. And as we open in prayer, preparing our hearts for the message, we can pray for them as they come back a little later today. And uh, let's go to God right now and seek his guidance as we look at his word this morning. Father, as we come before you, help us to recognize that you are the one who is in control. And Lord, as we've been singing this morning, help us to wait for you and, and to trust in you in every circumstance and situation in our lives. Lord, we pray for those traveling back today. We pray that you would just give them safety in their last day and as they come back. Lord, just uh, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series against the flow. Jesus challenging us, and as Luke describes in the book of Luke, the importance of standing for God, of doing what's right, even if it goes against the flow. This morning, we're in Luke chapter 7. We're continuing in verse 18, and we're introduced or introduced again to a man named John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And for this morning, we'll just call him John. He's different than the Apostle John, the one that wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. That was a different John. He was the brother of James, one of the disciples of Christ. This is John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of Christ, and we'll learn more about him this morning as we look at the Word of God. But he struggled with doubt, and we all struggle with doubt. The Bible is filled with episodes of doubt from some of the greatest heroes of the faith. Here are just a few examples. We see Moses struggled with doubt when the people of Israel complained. In Numbers chapter 11, in verse 11, it says, So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? As the people were complaining, Moses doubted that why God would have him lead this group of complainers to the promised land. Elijah struggled with doubt when Jezebel threatened his life. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey, that's Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. He doubted God's faithfulness. He felt all alone, threatened by the threats of Jezebel. Jeremiah struggled with doubt when facing difficult circumstances. Jeremiah 20 verse 14 says, Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. I wish I never had been born. As he stood for Christ when a nation had turned its back on God. The Apostle Paul struggled with doubt when times were hard. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, and we actually looked at this a little bit last week, says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, struggled 
even despaired of life. Doubt. We all can struggle with doubt. We often ask the question, why? Why, God, did you allow this to happen? Why, God, are you asking me to do this? Life seems unfair. I don't understand, God, what you're doing. And we struggle with doubt. Let's begin this morning by looking at John's story. We'll see the background of the one who was called the forerunner of Christ. His coming was prophesied in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, one of the prophecies of this coming forerunner. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, that was John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, will come. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Christ, the Messiah, was coming, but this messenger, this forerunner, was going to come to prepare the way. John the Baptist introduced the coming of Christ and introduced him to the world. We see in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John created quite a following, but his goal was to point them to Christ. And as Christ came into ministry, John moved to the background as Christ moved to the foreground. John 3, verse 30 says, He must, in John the Baptist speaking here, He must increase, that's Christ must increase, but I must decrease. Eventually, John was thrown into prison by Herod Antipas when he, John, called out Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. And Herod was very angry that John would stand for truth and condemn him for taking his own brother's wife. Herod hated him. Herodias hated him probably even more. But Herod was still afraid to kill John because John had quite a following, and Herod was afraid that it would create an uprising. But Herodias was continually trying to find ways to completely get rid of John, and so Herod was having a special party, and, and Herodias's daughter danced for the people there at the party, and, and Herod, in his drunkenness, promised her up to half the kingdom. She went and talked to her mother Herodias and came back with her request, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And John was beheaded, beheaded and we see the end of the ministry of John. Now the events here in Luke chapter 7 take place during the time when John was in prison. He sends some messengers to ask Jesus if Jesus was really the Messiah. And we see John's doubts as he was trying to figure out why. Why were the things going the way that they were going? It didn't make sense to John. Notice we'll begin in verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. It says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. 
Remember, if you remember from last week, some of the miracles that Jesus was doing last week, we looked at two of them, the, the uh, healing of the centurion's servant and raising to life the, the son of the widow of Nain that we looked at last week in the first 17 verses of Luke 7. So John had been hearing about all these things, continuing in verse 19, it says, and John calling two of his disciples to him, now John was in prison, so he didn't have freedom to go, but he called two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, said to John's messengers, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me." John had risked his life to proclaim Jesus, but now he was questioning Jesus' identity. The one that he introduced, he now came to with the question, are you really the Messiah? But we have to ask the question, what made him doubt? And we see John's struggles. We see John struggled because he was in prison because he stood for truth and did right. It did not seem fair that he was punished for obeying God. In prison, John had plenty of time to think. And in his thinking, his future looked bleak. I'm sure there were periods of time where he questioned God's faithfulness and love. God, do you really care? I'm here in prison. I'm here because I've been standing for you. And yet here I am day after day with no hope of being freed and a threat of being killed. It doesn't seem fair. And we also see that Jesus' actions did not meet John's expectations. John didn't see things changing the ways that he expected. Even being thrown in prison, he could say, well, okay, you know, there's evil authorities. But God, this isn't going the way that I think it should go. John, and according to God, had pronounced judgment. But Jesus was teaching love and mercy. John was proclaiming God's message to repent. And then Jesus shows up and says things like, love your enemy. Do good to those who curse you and, do, and those who do evil to you. Respond with goodness. John had promised that the kingdom was at hand, but there seemed to be no evidence of that occurring. But just like John, we can struggle with doubt. We doubt God's fairness when it seems like evil is blessed and good is punished. In Psalm, 20, in Psalm 73, the psalmist struggled with the seemingly, seeming success of the wicked and the psalmist's own struggles. 
Here's what the psalmist Asaph said in Psalm 73. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. God, why do the wicked seem to prosper? And your faithful ones struggle. Why does sickness and death come to the godly? Why does that person who cheats in my office seem to get the benefit of the doubt and get the promotion and I work hard and am faithful and honest in what I do and I don't get any recognition, much less promotion? Why? We doubt when God doesn't seem fair. We can doubt God's love and faithfulness when we face difficult circumstances, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, when we're struggling financially or physically or relationally. And we can doubt God's power and wisdom when things don't go as we expect. And here was John struggling because he was facing difficult circumstances and things weren't going the way that he thought they should go. But how do we overcome doubt? We need to look for what God is doing rather than question what he is not doing. Because God is at work all around us. And we we touched on that a little bit last week, recognizing that God is at work. But we look and we're consumed by the things that we want to see happening that aren't happening, and in doing that, we miss so many things that are taking place. There's an old hymn called Count Your Blessings. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, When you think that all is lost, count your blessings. You can name them one by one and it will surprise you what God has done. God is at work and we need to recognize what he is doing rather than simply focus on what he is not doing that we believe he should be. So what did Jesus tell these messengers He told them to go back and report what they had seen and heard. So they show up, and Jesus is in the midst of doing a boatload of miracles. And we don't know how long they're there, but it says at the very hour that they showed up, Jesus was healing. He was was healing the blind. He was casting out demons. He was restoring people with different health issues. And Jesus said, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. But another thing we need to do is we need to lean in harder to God when things don't make sense. What's our natural response? When things aren't going the way that we plan for them to go, we move away from God. But at that time, it's so much more important to lean into him. I know some of you enjoy riding snowmobiles. This winter, you've probably sort of been bummed (laughs) with a lack of snow. 
But what happens in a snowmobile when you're taking that corner? You lean into the corner. Same thing with a motorcycle or other vehicles. Probably not your car. But you lean into it. But what happens? We're taking the curve and it's scary. And what do we do? We go the other way. And God says, trust me. We need to lean in harder to God when things don't make sense. In verse 23 there, Jesus said, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And that term offended means that we quit. And Jesus said, in the midst of the difficulties, lean in to God rather than away. It's important to recognize the difference between doubt and unbelief because doubt can paralyze us. But unbelief causes us to turn our back on God. Warren Wiersbe gives a great description or contrast between doubt and unbelief. He says this, doubt is a matter of the mind. I doubt when I can't understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. But unbelief is a matter of the will. I refuse to believe God's word, and because of that refusal, I refuse also to obey what he calls me to do. Doubt. But then we also see here a strange thing happens. So John's messengers, Jesus just said, all right, go back and tell John what you've just seen and heard. So they take off, but the rest of the crowd is still there. And what does Jesus do? He commends John. Jesus spoke to the crowd, and instead of chastising John for his doubts, he commends him for his work. Notice what it says in verses 24 through 30. It says, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out? to see. A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will go to prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. By the way, our position because of Christ is greater than that. But he goes on in verse 29 and says, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God being baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. These verses share some of the characteristics of John that allowed him to trust God. We see that John did not compromise or waver. Verse 24 reminds us that John was not a reed shaken by the wind. He said, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Someone just being tossed to and fro? No, they went out there because John gave a strong message. He stood firm for the truth. But not only that, John did not seek popularity, power, or fame. Verse 25 seems a little strange, talking about being clothed in soft garments. And if you read earlier in the Gospels, you see John had a unique attire. 
He, uh, he got his uh, clothes from the outdoor store. He didn't seek luxury and power and ease. He was a prophet who boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God. And then we see in the final verses of this narrative, verses 31 through 35, that Jesus condemned the actions and attitudes of the religious leaders and others who followed them. The others were condemned. Beginning in verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? In other words, what about you guys, the ones that were standing there, the religious leaders who were challenging Jesus? Verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man, Jesus speaking of himself, says he, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Now that may seem like a really strange passage. Jesus said, listen, those of you who are rejecting the message of God are like little children and who play your games. And you get angry when they don't play by your rules. You play the, the game of life, and in the wedding, you want everybody to dance, but not everybody dances. And then the time of sorrow, the funeral comes, and, and you play the dirge, and they don't play along. You see, the religious leaders and many of the people wanted the game played by their rules. Jesus reminds us that it is God who is in control. He is the one who sets the rules. The religious leaders, they wanted the game played by their own rules. This is what we do. This is what we want. God is the one who is in control. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a person plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is sovereign. He is in control, and we can trust him. We may not understand what he's doing, but we can cling to him. Sometimes he allows suffering and hardship but we must cling to him. John, questioning God while in prison. He's not the only one in Scripture that struggled with a prison term. Here's a couple more. Paul was unjustly placed in prison for over two years because of a ruler named Felix who wanted to gain favor of the Jews. Joseph, from the book of Genesis, was left in prison for two years after the cupbearer forgot to tell Pharaoh of Joseph's plight. Life didn't seem fair. But it's amazing how Joseph, when his brothers came to him, and they were the ones that had sold him into slavery and, and put him in a position now where he was eventually thrown into prison. But if you remember the story from Genesis, what happened? We see that God was in control of it all. 
And so when his brothers came and asked and pleaded for his forgiveness, what did Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is in control. God controls all of our circumstances. The book of Esther is a very interesting book in the Old Testament. And it was one of the last books that was accepted into the canon of Scripture. And the reason was the name of God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. But the hand of God is evident throughout the book. If you're not familiar with the story, Esther and her uncle Mordecai were there in a foreign land. The nation of Israel had been conquered. And Esther ends up becoming queen. But there's a wicked man named Haman who hates the Jews, who hates Esther's uncle Mordecai because he won't bow to Haman, and Haman had a powerful position there in the kingdom. And so Haman is trying to figure out a way to to get rid of Mordecai and those Jewish people that Mordecai represented. So he had a plan, and he built a gallows, and he was going to hang Mordecai. And he went before the king to set up a thing where they could go and wipe out the Jews and take all of their things that they had. But it's interesting that while Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews seemed to have no hope, God was at work. Because the night before Haman planned to have Mordecai hanged, the king couldn't sleep. So what did he do? He called some people in. You would think maybe he had some nice soft music played, you know, bring the band together to play for him so he could sleep. No, he didn't do that. He had the records brought out to read. (laughs) Boring reading. And the person who was called in to read from the records of the kingdom just happened to turn to the page where it talked about a heroic act of Mordecai when he had saved the king from an assassination. All just happened to take place the night before Mordecai was going to be hanged. And instead of being hanged, Mordecai was honored. (laughs) And Haman... The wicked one had to go before the Mordecai throughout the streets and, and praise his actions. And Haman was eventually hanged on those gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And the Jews were protected. God's at work. He is sovereign. And there are things that take place in our life that we may never understand in this lifetime. But we can be confident we have a sovereign God. Now there are still doubts that will crop up in our lives over and over again. There will be days and times and circumstances where we say, God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen? Just like John. Or just like Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Paul, or many others. The question is, how are we going to respond to those doubts? Are they going to cause us to be paralyzed? Are they going to cause us to to lean away from God rather than toward Him? 
You see, in order to trust God in difficult circumstances, we must believe in his love, his wisdom, and his control. In his book, The Eye of the Storm, Max Lucado shared a fable that reminds us that only God sees the whole picture. He is the one who controls the situation. In the fable, an old woodcutter lived in poverty, and he had a beautiful white horse. Everyone wanted to buy the horse, and many were willing to pay outrageous prices for it. The people there of the village where the woodcutter lived couldn't understand why he didn't sell the horse and live off of the general proceeds, or generous, excuse me, proceeds of the sale. They thought he was a fool. But the old woodcutter responded that the horse was more than a possession. It was a companion, and he could not sell his loved companion. But one day the horse disappeared. The people told the woodcutter that he was a fool for not selling the horse earlier and, the man, and that the woodcutter was cursed, and now he had nothing. But the woodcutter responded, don't speak too quickly. Only say that the horse is not in the stable. That's all we know. Well, the people of the village laughed, and they thought the woodcutter was crazy. But a couple weeks later, the horse returned with a dozen other wild horses, all worth a great deal of money. The people said, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was actually a blessing. The woodcutter responded, once again, you go too far. Only say that the horse is back and that it brought a dozen horses with it. How do you know if it is a blessing? You see only a fragment of the story. While the people just smiled down deep, they knew that this was a blessing for the woodcutter. The woodcutter had one and only one son, and this son began to train the horses. But in training, this son fell off one of the horses and broke both of his legs. The people said, you were right, the horses were a curse. Now your son has broken legs and cannot help you. The woodcutter replied, say only that my son's legs are broken. Who knows if it is a blessing or a curse? A short time later, the country went to war and all the young men from that village were called into the army. All except the son of the woodcutter who was still recovering from his broken legs. The people knew that many of their sons would die in the war. And they told the woodcutter, you were right. Your son's broken legs were a blessing, not a curse. While our sons go off to war, your son will remain at home with you. The woodcutter replied, do not draw conclusions. Only say that your sons went off to war and my son stayed home. None of us know if it is a blessing or a curse. Only God knows. Whatever your circumstances in life, you may not understand what is going on. But God is sovereign. He is in control and we can trust him. Just like John, there will be times when we struggle with doubts. But when those doubts come, lean in. And look what he has done, his faithfulness throughout the years. And trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. I pray that you would help us today to recognize that you are in control. 
that you are almighty God and we can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.